Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. This is Andrew Rimby. We are so excited here to present The Queerness of Shakespeare with Dr. Stephen Guy Bray. Soon you're going to hear a little teaser and then a really exciting opening number from the musical Something Rotten called Welcome to the Renaissance. So it'll pack a punch. I just want to let you all know who our guest is. Dr. Stephen Guy Bray is professor of English at the University of British Columbia in Canada, and he specializes in Renaissance poetry, queer theory, and poetics. And we're going to be talking all about his recent book from 2020 called Shakespeare and Queer Representation. So I hope you all enjoy. And here's a little teaser to get us started. To some extent, the queerness of a text is in the hands of its readers. And uh, they can be their own judge over whether they think a text is queer or not. I think that's an important point, the, the sort of the power of the reader in a situation like that. And I think most people don't have it. They think that there is a reading and someone will tell them and then that will be their understanding of the work. But in fact, they can come up with their own. Welcome to the Renaissance with poets, painters and bon vivants. And merry minstrels who show the streets of London a strum in their lutes. In puffy pants and pointy leather boots. Welcome to the Renaissance, where we ooh and ah you with zombies. We're so progressive, the latest and the greatest, we bring it to you. With much ado, welcome to the Renaissance. Hi, this is Andrew Rimby, again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Today, I'm joined by a really exciting and guest that I've encountered many times on social media, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I'm here with Dr. Stephen Guy Bray. So hi, Stephen, if I can address you by Stephen now. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. Um, So he recently just published Shakespeare and Queer Representation. that came out with uh, Rutledge Press. And we're going to talk all things Shakespeare, obviously. Um, And right away, I just have to, you know, show those who can see this on the video, but all out there, look up, you know, Stephen's book, because it has such an intriguing aesthetic pink kind of vibe going on. So can you explain, like, what is this cover? Well, the... um... The publishers sent me to this stock photo website and they said I could pick any picture. It just had to work with the structure. So the black header and then the circle in the middle. And I was writing about, at that point, I was writing the chapter on the sonnets and I was writing about sonnet five, which is about turning flower, preserving flowers by distilling them. Mm. And so I was looking up images of roses and then I suddenly thought, no, I should look up an image of a rose still. So that's what this is. This is from, I forget, it's either Pakistan or India, but it's a rose still. And as you see, it takes an unbelievable amount of petals to make any attar of roses, which is used for perfume and for food. Uh, And so I like the prettiness of the pink and the petals, but also the sense of the sheer work of stripping all those petals, loading them into the still, and then boiling them for ages. Yeah. And 
I'm still so curious what's hidden um, behind your title. It's really just more petals. Okay. Just overflowing with petals. Yeah. But I do. It's, um, I think it was very um, convenient and so beautifully aesthetic when I was reading your book in my pink bubble bath that I was really, really excited by this uh, color choice. So, you know, with the cover, I'm just really curious about what the intention is for this spotlight on Shakespeare, right? It's a series that Rutledge is doing. Yeah, I think my book is the second to come out in the series. Uh, the series is edited by John Garrison and Kyle Pavetti, who are friends of mine. They're both um, professors in the States. And the idea was just to have a variety of short studies of Shakespeare, some aspect of Shakespeare that would uh, respond to various contemporary critical interests. So there's no, you know, we, there's no attempt to be thorough so that each book will cover all of Shakespeare or anything. So they wrote on Shakespeare and Peace, and there's one on Shakespeare and Race, which has just come out. I forget the title, sorry. Uh, but so they're planning to have a lot of sort of very individual, particular analyses. And as I say, it was short. It was, I think this is 55,000 words, which is on the short side for a, a monograph. Yeah. And what I like is that it is such a pocket size, um, like it's a very good supplemental book for educators. And I'm assuming like that is a very strategic choice that this gives you a lens into how you would approach Shakespeare from, in your case, a queer angle or lens. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that would, that would be nice. Um, the, the emphasis in writing it was really on accessibility. So I wanted it to be available that way to a, a range of readers. Yeah, and before I hit the record button, I can give everyone a behind the scenes. I was saying to Stephen that sometimes with academics, technical jargon can become a stumbling block, especially when it comes to, you know, what we would call, you said monograph, which is just an academic published work, right? Is considered like a full length published work is what we would say is a book, but is a monograph. Mm -hmm. um, but your language, that makes so much sense because you start right in your intro. We're gonna jump right into it with contemporary queer poets, specifically um, someone I think you personally know, but Richie Hoffman. Um, and I think that really just helps ground how you're approaching Shakespeare in the modern day from your own queer angle. Um, and yeah, so why, you know, why choose queer contemporary poetry? Like what drew you to using that as a model? Well, I read a lot of contemporary poetry. And as you know, of course, um, the study of English literature is, is typically divided chronologically. So there's, Old English, the medieval period, the Renaissance, the 18th century, and so on. Uh, and so I'm a Renaissance specialist, which is great. Um, but there's also a sense in which I'm actually a specialist in poetry and poetics of any period. 
uh, Renaissance is just what I usually work on. So I thought that using more recent things uh, would give would be a way of starting by making it clear that I'm not applying this just to Shakespeare, that these are issues that people continue to grapple with. Also, I thought the poems I chose were really good and it was a, you know, a pleasure to write about them and to draw some more uh, attention to them. It also makes the argument, I mean, of the three poets I discussed, two are contemporary queer poets. Um, and so it kind of implicitly sets up Shakespeare as a queer poet from the beginning of the book, which was useful to me to do. Yeah, so you have Richie Hoffman, who you um, quote from his poem, Allegory, and then the other poet, I remember his, his poetry book's called Soho, but remind me again, Stephen, what is That's his name? Richard Scott, he's an English poet. So it's the Soho, which is the main, the historic gay district of London. Um, yeah, I know both of them through, through Twitter, actually. Um, yeah, and I thought they were both wonderful poems and really sort of relevant to what I was trying to do in the book. Yeah, I mean, I especially am caught by, um, well, I had to look up Soho to see because you describe so vividly the pinkness of that cover. And the poem that you choose is called Public Library. It has a longer name. I'm Public Library, to... 1998. Thank you. Okay. And is very vivid in terms <clears throat> of queerness, but especially, well, <laughs> you could explain. I mean, I don't want you to give it all away, but, you know, the read listeners <clears throat> could, you know, find the poem, but there's something written in the margins that just really <laughs> grabs yeah, it's, in the poem. It's about uh, a boy, I guess a teenager, who's reading poetry and looking for gay stuff. And at first he doesn't find any in the poems. There aren't poems about men loving other men or anything. Um, so he, he starts drawing in the margins. He writes dirty words and he draws pictures and so on. And, but he ends by discovering a kind of queerness in the language, even though it's not actually talking about uh, gay love or anything like that. So I thought that it was, it's a sort of practical description of looking for queer content in a way that I thought would be really familiar to all bookish gay people. Yeah, no, I love how it's, you know, Scott writing a poem about finding you know, as you say, gay stuff in literature, but like then, like the poem that we are actually reading, I'm trying to figure out how to explain it, but the poet is writing a poem in which someone is actually adding to this poem. So it's like a, it's a very meta kind of experience. Yeah. In effect, he's doing a queer reading of a poem that presumably wouldn't normally get one. Yeah. And part of what's important about that poem is that it's the first in the book and then the rest of the book is really sort of precisely the kinds of poems that that boy was looking for, poems that are explicitly <laughs> about gay sex. Yeah, and if everyone listening doesn't know, we're gonna get really into explicit discussions, not, you know, not like we're going to certain porn channels, but like there is one poem that it's very, you know, stood out in my mind about. Um, and I think this is from Scott. Is he the poet who talks about um, 
like someone was jerking off onto a text like their spunk or i remember some line about yes but it's it's the word yes yes rather than the thing itself but yeah yeah it's it's a really explicit the, the content he adds in the margins is really explicitly sexual and then as i said the books he write the poems he writes in the book you go on to read are often very explicitly sexual yeah and um you know so basically everyone should get their hands on soho so that's a shout out to richard scott um but it is really interesting of how that helps and we will get to you know hoffman's allegory even though you know it's a different type of or felt like reading a different type of argument that you're presenting when you use allegory is more about your argument with poetics Um, but like to stay on this idea about queer representation, which is what your book is called, you know, you make a very, I think, provocative, important intervention about how you're approaching the word queer. So can you maybe get into a little of that? Like what makes what you're doing really different than say other Shakespeare queer scholars who might've been, well, I'll let you explain, because I know there is, you take a divergent path. I've published a fair bit on Shakespeare over the years. Um, and there has come to be a, a sort of split in a lot of queer work in, in the academy, certainly in literary studies. The earlier, the beginnings of queer studies, gay and lesbian studies as they were then, were primarily concerned with biographies. So the author's biography, but also the biographies of the characters in the novel or whatever. Uh, And I would say over the last 10 years or so, maybe a little longer, people have started focusing more on other kinds of queerness in a text. And that's what I've been doing for some time now. So Shakespeare queer representation then is part of what I'm doing as a whole, I guess, which is looking for the ways that queerness can be inherent in language, even if the content is not gay or sexual at all. So as you see in the book, Shakespeare and Queer Representation, um, with really with the exception of the sonnets, I'm not talking about literature that seems gay at all. And in fact, there is a lot of Shakespeare that is about passionate relations between people of the same sex. And I I don't really deal with that because I'm just looking at this one aspect of the writing that I see as queer. Yeah, so you're not as interested about a line I constantly think about, about the little, um, right, little prince. Is that what Horatio calls Hamlet? Sweet prince. Or sweet prince, thank you, little prince. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a different type of scenario. No, Um, I am. I am interested in that, um, but it's not, it's not primarily what I'm focused, I'm not focusing on that aspect in my, my work so much these days. Yeah, I mean, I think Shakespeare, like even just saying the word Shakespeare, how much do you feel, or maybe this is my own, you know, alignment towards Shakespeare, how much do you feel overcome with a way of representing Shakespeare? Because it is such a, um, you know, there's so much to yeah. analyze. And he's such a well-known playwright in just the public. 
Yeah, and he's not just a writer, he's also a, a public figure and he's a big part of how literature is being defined and how Englishness is being defined and um, often how whiteness has been defined. Uh, yeah, it's, it's exhausting. Uh, first of all, if you study Renaissance literature, everyone assumes you work on Shakespeare. Um, and I, he, he hasn't been the person I've focused on primarily in my career. Uh, and also, as you say, a lot of people have written on, on it. So, you know, I begin a project, I make notes, and I start to read the secondary sources. And, you know, when you open the MLA index and, and type in any of Shakespeare's plays, it's just horrifying how much stuff is out there. Even with something like King John, which is, you know, not a very popular or widely read or studied uh, Shakespeare text. The bibliography for Macbeth is completely out of control. Um, so yeah, it's a big responsibility. Uh, it's very hard to feel, I guess you'll never really feel that you've done justice to the secondary sources because you've always missed so much. But you know, if you were going to write on Macbeth and you were going to start by reading everything written on Macbeth, you would actually die before you got to the end. So you have to, you have to make some shortcuts. Well, and I've felt such a huge sense of relief when you write in your work that you're not going to look deeply into the critical sources, that you're really just focused with the close reading from, you know, what makes, how, how does this material, especially like I remember with Macbeth, um, which we can say because we're not in a theatrical <laughs> setting right now, um, I just know I've had a lot of discussions about that because you know it's coming back to Broadway soon. That the uh, the the superstition that you shouldn't say Macbeth in the theater was invented in the nineteenth century. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and it's 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 silly, like all superstitions. I know. I should run into once the theaters are all opening again. I'll just run into them, shriek Macbeth, and run out again. Yeah, you could scream it at the beginning of <laughs> the play. I'm sure <laughs> that would be very interesting. But I do want to try to. Um, I still haven't seen the new film version. Did you get to see that either. yet? Okay. I'm kind I'm of curious. dreading that, but we'll really, see. okay. But yeah, that was a conscious decision. I mean, I say I think in the introduction that I'm not really going to deal adequately with the secondary criticism because it would mean that the book was twice as long. Yeah. You know, if you begin, as, as we're all trained to, right, you, re, you begin by doing a survey of the existing scholarship, that's actually unmanageable, I think, for most plays by Shakespeare, certainly for one of the big ones like Macbeth. Yeah, well, and, and what I like is that this book, that Shakespeare and queer representation, you're kind of on, what would I call, I would call it almost, like blurring the boundaries where it's academic scholarship, but it's also in a public humanities lens, like you're right in the middle. And I like those texts because <laughs> I think you have such good crossover audience appeal. And yeah, because if you make it too long and it's too dedicated to critical sources, the general public who's interested in Shakespeare, their eyes are glazing, like they're not, yeah, they're not going to engage with like they're right. They're going to engage with what they can get from the public library and, you know, the Shakespeare biographies. Yeah, the books are the book is short and all the chapters are short. Um, it was it was actually a lot of fun to 
to write. Well, I always like writing anyway, but this was certainly a great deal of fun to write. Yeah, and how long was the process from when you started the monograph to when it went to publication? I'm just trying, I, I signed the contract in July, 2018. Okay. I started work on it in September of that year and finished 14 months later in December, 2019. Oh, yeah, that's a quick... And then it came out in July, 2020. Wow, okay, yeah, that's quick. Cause yeah. a few other interviews um, with academic monographs, like I guess what we would say is that traditional from start to finish, like I've heard from five to six to seven. People, I mean, you know this yourself from being a student and knowing other students, people work at different speeds. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're taking a course, obviously you have deadlines. Once you're an academic, you don't, I mean, you do have deadlines, but not in the same way. And something like a book is an independent project. Some people work faster than others. Some people really don't enjoy writing, so it's actually difficult for them to do a book. But I just, I always love the whole process. Yeah, well, and you helped free my mind, like as I'm, you know, halfway through my dissertation, like I'm now at that point where I'm discovering you know, my own close readings of Whitman, like, oh, what is the homoerotic argument here? Or like, why is he indebted to Shakespeare sonnets, which will come up because I don't know if you know, but you do, Stephen uses a Whitman poem, which is exciting in the intro. Um, I'm trying to remember again, what exact Whitman poem did you, Poets to Come? I think it's Poets I can't remember. I think it is. I'll try to like quickly, <laughs> we'll do a quick uh, sight reading of the yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. It's yes, referenced. yes, yes, here it is. It's on page 12, but um, yeah, you're talking about Roland Barthes and compare what he writes about readers yeah. to the end of Whitman's Poets to Come, but instead you write readers to come. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that poem, Poets to Come. Well. It's yeah. had a lot of sexual puns in queer groups, obviously. Yeah. But um, well, and, and there as well in my description. But yeah, I like Whitman. And Whitman is interesting also from the point of view of queer literary history because Whitman's poems, like Shakespeare's sonnets, are at once super gay, but also at the center of the literary canon. Mm-hmm. I mean, for Shakespeare's sons, that's true everywhere, but for Whitman, it's certainly true in the States. Um, Whitman is fundamental to the concept of American literature, and yet it is, in fact, super gay. So it's kind of interesting, as opposed to, you know, the sort of works that are often being discovered that were written and circulated privately and in secret because they were so scandalous. But here you have Whitman, a national sensation, and all his books are about how he loves men. That's a slight simplification. Of yeah, but no, I really like that analogy because I think there's a reason why Whitman, you know, and we won't stay on this long because <laughs> listeners have heard my, you know, how I'm looking at Whitman, but I think it's important that Whitman in a note when he's writing Leaves of Grass in 18, well, 54, probably before it <laughs> published, he compares that he wants Leaves of Grass to be compared to Shakespeare's sonnets, specifically the sonnets, 
mm-hmm. um, in a note, and the Iliad. I mean, I now I'm in the Iliad. I'm very into the Greek element right now with his homoeroticism. I was just talking to Stephen about Narcissus, which I'm well, Shakespeare sonnets with that young man. Um, right. There's a lot of Narcissus type imagery there too. Like it's a, (laughs) that reflection homoeroticism. Um, the Narcissus story has been very important, um, historically. I think, I just think that's all about Whitman to the combination of Shakespeare's sonnets and the Iliad. I would not have expected that. Yeah. Well, Whitman did want to be known as the new Homer. Yeah. Which I think eventually he grows his beard out. And yeah, we could talk all about how he had a bust on of his head and he looks like, actually he looks like uh, Plato. No, not Plato. Sorry. He looks like Socrates. You never really see Plato. Um, but <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Um, well, I'm just curious because we are talking about our own queer literary interests. When did you first remember reading Shakespeare? What did you read? Do you remember? The first was the sonnets. My parents had a complete Shakespeare, as I guess many parents do. Um, And I read the sonnets because I was already, I was 11 or 12. I was already reading a lot of poetry. And then I realized at the back of the volume, the end of the volume, there were all these poems. So I read them and then I was so stunned because they they were so beautiful, but also they were a man talking about loving another man. I couldn't believe it. I remember reading them thinking, does everyone know this? Um, yeah, so in, in a way, writing this, this book was sort of a way to go back to um, baby Stephen and you know, continue it into the present. Yeah, well, and I like what you're saying about that subversive kind of reading, even though it's not subversive because mm-hmm the material is homoerotic openly, but like you're saying, when these texts become really central to the literary canon, um, it, there's a t- certain type of straight reading that happens. And yeah. like, how can you deny the homoeroticism? Or that's a question I always ask, but. It's amazing what uh, heterosexuals will do to hide homosexuality. They can be very energetic. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, for, for a long time, the standard reading was, oh, this is just sort of an intense friendship. Um, and then now I would say, this might be unkind, but we seem to have moved to a stage where people are um, recognize that it's a man loving another man, but they still don't discuss that. They still don't read them primarily as love poems, it seems to me, yeah. uh, which is a loss, but it's their loss. That's true. Well, it's kind of like, when you feel like you're the only queer scholar on a panel about a very queer figure. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> enough of that. <laughs> no, but I think we're moving into a really exciting direction, which is what your work really demonstrates, Stephen, which is that this queer representation of Shakespeare, that it has so many different iterations. like. You're not focused on the biography, but that biography, I think the biography became such a hang up on especially straight critics that it's when they're so focused on 
am I going to read Shakespeare as bisexual or am I going to read Whitman as bisexual or are they asexual? Right. And I'm just thinking, why aren't we looking at the text themselves and just seeing, <coughs> you know, surprise ourselves about different kinds of lent angles. Okay. Hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Which is what you do. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, I think, yeah, you should be looking at the texts. Um, people do get hung up on the biographies. And then that's so they could say, so there's no evidence that your famous writer here uh, ever had sex with an other man or something. Yeah. But it's, it's like, would you say that to someone who's indebted to, you know, Marxist theory that, oh, Whitman never studied Marx? Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's also... Um, uh, someone pointed this out, but it's it's basically the uh, the belief that everyone's innocent until proven guilty, and so innocence would be heterosexuality and guilt would be homosexuality. So, evidence of gay content of any sort is held to a higher standard than evidence of straight content. Hmm. Well, and that's why I just love that. Of course, you reference. Eve Sedgwick and I will always remember just reading her proclamation about Shakespeare is gay um Proust is gay I don't know every author basically is gay and just making that as a rhetorical gesture of like let's just you know open the damn closet already um yeah, that, that was a, that was a great gesture and, and an important gesture um to move away from all the sort of very careful qualified and hedged about statements and just say, yeah, he's gay. Yeah, exactly. And I still love that when people read that word for word, but again, like there's obviously a tongue in cheekness that writers do. Um, yeah, to make points, but okay. So baby Steven was reading the sonnets. Were you assigned? Do you, you remember being assigned a certain Shakespeare play in your, um, you know, high school? In high school, we were. I, I, um, yeah. I think the first one I read in high school was Othello. Interesting. That's oh, very odd, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mine was Romeo and Juliet. They usually do that because they, I think, because they feel it, it's a warning to horny teenagers not to get too involved. Because not in that film version that I saw in high school. Well, I the mean... thing is, it, it it ends in the the death both the lovers well, so I, I think they feel true. it's like a warning remember that beautiful italian man who played romeo in the 60s that's the version i saw with his you know bare backside he was the director was italian the actor was english oh really okay yeah i, I don't know that he ever did much else but yeah i remember that that was the that's like we did romeo and juliet too 
Yeah. Yeah. And then I did, well, that's the thing. Now I have such a nice challenge from you, which is King John. Cause like you said, it's not very, where yeah. I didn't, I don't know anything until I encountered your text about it, but yeah, I know. I remember Hamlet and um, Julius Caesar. There we go. I was trying to remember what was the history play. Um, yeah, that's what we did. Those are good. I mean, King John is a play that I think should be better known because it's really weird and it has some genuine humor in it. Hmm. Um, it was so much fun to write about it. And I also taught it and students love it. They really, really okay, well, I, you're giving us all a challenge. We all need to listen. Well, what I'm going to do is probably find the, um, you know, dramatization audiobooks. I love all those Shakespeare dramatizations. Like I took a, well, and I hope that many English departments, some don't require Shakespeare now as a survey, but I had to do, thankfully, a Shakespeare survey. And I like when I would commute back to see my parents an hour and a half away, it wasn't far, but I would like put on the audiobook CDs of, you know, um, a winter's night or winter's whatever. I, a winter's tale. A winter's yeah. night. Thank you. <laughs> a winter's tale. Um, I actually do really enjoy that play. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. And that's also a really eccentric play. Um, that was the first Shakespeare play I ever published on, I believe. Yes. Really? Okay. Okay. Well, what is, and I know I never like getting asked the favorite or least favorite, but like, what is a play of Shakespeare's that if you didn't have to ever see it again, you would be okay? Oh, that's, that's easy. The Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh my God, it's terrible. Okay. I've never read it. So now okay. I'm going to X and A it. <laughs> it's, I mean, there are, the quality is variable. The, the thing about the thing about the Shakespeare cult is that it's elevated all his plays and some of them really aren't that good. The good plays are better than other people wrote. I mean, he is really a great writer, but we all have our off days and Mary Wise of Windsor is absolutely unforgivable. I have to ask my aunt now because that's the play she saw at the Globe Theater when she was in London. Oh God, it's so <laughs> terrible. I've been very lucky with what I've seen. Yeah. I saw a... Um, like very immersive off-Broadway production of um, Hamlet. That was incredible. And then I saw the recent revival of King Lear, which was stunning. I, oh my gosh, I love the sisters. I have to say, I think I enjoy the sisters more than King Lear. King Lear is a masterpiece. Yeah. It's, yeah. All the conniving and soap opera. They're so, it's, I like the soap opera, <laughs> Shakespeare. Um, but okay. But see, I knew we would have, we would just go into all different directions, which is great. But well, what's your favorite, well, favorite or which play do you enjoy? Maybe I'll say returning to time and time again. Yeah, see that changes over time, but I'd have to say at the moment, the, the two I think are probably best are King Lear and Antony and Cleopatra. And I don't discuss either in the book, but I think those are just both spectacular. Hmm. So you put King Lear in your kind of Stephen Guy Bray hierarchy above Hamlet. Yeah. Huh. 
Okay. I, it's hard. I mean, I find Hamlet very irritating because I find the character so irritating. Uh, I can see that it's a great play. I just have never enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. And wait, Horatio is Hamlet's school friend, right? Yeah. Okay. I always get confused because what is Ophelia's brother's name? Laertes. Laertes. Okay. Well, I would love to play Horatio just because I find <laughs> like his backstory is so confusing. <laughs> But the whole, the school backstory is confusing because I think there's a lot that happened uh, between them in their schooling <laughs> years. Um, but yeah, I think what it is with Hamlet, I just like the progression of just how everything unravels. Like It really does. Yeah, it's such a good arc in my mind, like especially with Queen Gertrude. I think she has a really interesting arc. Um, yeah, poor yeah. Gertrude. Yeah, and Ophelia, oh, oh my. <laughs> but I do really love too in the way that you approach laying out your intro and then you have a really exciting coda, which I thought was a nice touch to return back oh, to, you. yeah. I think it's great that you return back to the contemporary queer readings. Um, that you reference, well, Roland Barthes. Mm -hmm. I think, is it Barthes or Barth? Bart. Bart. It's Bart. Yeah. Okay. Um, he was French, right? Yes. Okay. He's okay. for me, he's the my main theorist, I would say. He's the best. Yeah. Was I think he was gay, right? Super gay. Yeah. Super gay. He wrote about it too. His, his diaries were published. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. See, what's funny is after I read your, um, you know, coda, I was like, again, walking out of my bubble bath. <laughs> I don't know. Stephen Guy Bray's book is a very good, I should tie it with some kind of sponsorship with baths. But, um, yes, <laughs> but right facing me was Roland Bart, but not the book you mentioned, but well, actually, you do mention it, but um, not in terms of what probably we're going to discuss a lot, which is his reader response theory. But I saw, uh, is it Camara or Camera? Camera Lucida, yeah. Camera Lucida, yes, yeah, staring right out at me. Um, that's a wonderful book. Yeah, that's yeah. the one about photography that I, I quote from. But the, the, um, the pleasure of the text is the main one for me. Yeah, which I really need to get my hands on because... It's very short, too. Oh, is it? Okay. But it reminded me of a very early prototype of Samuel Delaney's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue in the sense of this cruising idea. Or um, That's an interesting parallel. Delaney would have read Bart, of course. But yeah, the idea of the, the relationship between the writer and the text, or between the reader and the text, or between the writer and the reader, that all these relationships are sexual, I think, or can be sexual, is a good one, I think. So it's a very productive way to think about it. Yeah, well, and like, even with your text, the reader is, you're really, you know, devoting your time, your private time, to this text, like any text you engage in, mm -hmm. it becomes part of your habit, 
And I think that's just a really interesting phenomenon because I like that you use the word cruising because I do. I think it's a really productive entryway yeah. into a queer reading. <clears throat> yeah, and it's it's partly this with these the aspect of cruising that is searching, but it's also the idea that it's not going to lead to something permanent. I like the transience of it as a model also. Yeah, and does Bart, he uses the word specifically cruising? Uh, my French copy is at home, so I'm not oh. sure what word he uses. But um, yeah, I know though, like you're saying, he's really interested in just this reader to textual, this reader text um, engagement. Um, yeah, and how long ago was that published? Do you remember when he did The Pleasure of the Text? It's from originally the early 70s. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because he's part of, I'm trying to remember my theory history now, but linguistic theory or... Like, was he a formalist? Not really. He was, he was the contemporary uh, kind of criticism that he's most associated with, I think, would probably be cultural studies. Okay. He wrote about a lot of things, yeah. um, literature, but also photography, advertisements, wrestling, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, like, so he really goes into all different genres. Okay, well, <laughs> again, we all... We have a lesson to read more of Roland Bart. Um, but, you know, going into who we didn't talk about, who I know, I think Richie Hoffman just came out with a new book or it's. it's I think it's out next month, maybe. Yeah, oh, soon. Okay. Yeah. So it'll be out hopefully when you're. you're 100 Lovers. It'll be out soon. 100 Lovers. Okay. Um, so Allegory, the poem that you do a really, mm -hmm. you know, nuanced close reading with. Can you speak to maybe why did that poem strike a chord with you, Stephen, for your work here? I, well, it, it really did start with the title because allegory is, of course, a, a kind of representation, a very noticeable kind, because you're representing something as something else. Um, so an allegory in that sense is always false, right? It's not really a story about this. It's actually a story about that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so the idea is the writer and the reader are in on this plot to represent something as something else. But then I was, I was really intrigued by the poem because you cannot really figure out what's going on in the poem. Um, so there are various kinds of representation. It's a poem that, in which the line between art and nature seems to be blurred, which I think is always noteworthy. Um, yeah, so it's it's about representation, and it's also it's about a representation that is disorienting, and so I thought that was useful, um, because as I say, you know, the the idea of non queer representation would be that it's straightforward, right? So the writer, for instance, does um, basically the minimum in order to represent something to you, right? Like a character they give you, or a landscape, yeah. Yeah, like they give you exposition. They give it all to you in this type yeah. of very reproductive or progression, a chronological progression. Um, yeah, whereas um, an allegory, a lot of basic facts have to be altered anyway in an allegory. But also in um, Richie's poem, it's 
we're not, it's not even clear what kind of representation we're talking about. I mean, he's, the, the phrase I talked about at the beginning, songs written down in pictures. You think what the hell's going on here? Songs and writings and pictures are actually different kinds of representation. So I thought that was really useful. Um, and then at the end, right, towards the end, well, it's really short, he says, the trees are like a freeze. So you have that kind of rhyme, but you also have the, uh, trees are like a fresco, sorry, but you also have that equation of the natural object, the trees, with the painted object, the fresco. Yeah, and I love, but the whole, it, every image is tied back to a story, right? The rep they represent some kind of narrative, which is, I really loved this poem that you choose, especially thinking about why are the trees on fire? <laughs> like, how yeah. did the fresco become gold? Like, are the trees gold, <laughs> right? But you're, there's a yeah. lot of questions and yeah. All, all these things in the poem represent something, but we're not sure what it is. So for me, that, that's a, one kind of queer representation where the, the work of representing actually obscures what's being represented. The representation is unclear or perhaps so elaborate as to be incomprehensible. Yeah, well, it, it has, yeah. Well, you have me thinking now a lot about like the model that you put forward of queer representation is one that is not gonna go away because it's, I think, very productive of just, you know, even, when I look now, every time at Moby Dick and the squeezing of the hands with the sailors and the sperm whale, they still are not like sexually, physically coming together, but there's something happening, right? Like those, yeah. the moments of slippage, well, that's really an interesting pun, but right, like literal <laughs> moments that are just kind of dr dropped, but there's something queer to it. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one way to think of queer representation is, uh, you know, this is following on what you just said, is a representation can be queer if it makes you think, why did they put that in? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the idea is that in, in some narratives, it would always be clear why things were there because they contributed to the story and to the progression of the plot. Um, that's why I quoted the Cedric because she, she she flags the idea of excess. Representation can be a kind of excess or excessive representation can be seen as queer, which is one of the things I look at in the book. Yeah, and those are the texts I gravitate towards, like <laughs> Dorian Gray or The House of Mirth. Like I was just having this discussion about why I, pref I think The House of Mirth is my favorite Wharton novel because it's so just full of that decorative excess. Like that to me is what makes it strange. And yeah. Um, and there's no clear, uh, there's no clear wrapping of the narrative. It's not right, teleological. It doesn't follow a specific, this happens, that happens, this happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just going to ponder. Definitely, I think somehow I'm going to be citing you, Stephen. I don't know how yet, but I know it'll happen with queer representation. I would be honored. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a reason that you're here on the podcast now, <laughs> but I did. I, well, I first, you know, as we're nearing like wrapping up, um, cause I have a little fun game I'm going to play with Steven at the end, but 
I really loved when I first encountered you, it was with your book, homoerotic space. Um, Cause I was tracing like, who are the scholars who've used homoeroticism in their title? Um, Cause there aren't many. No, um, no, they wouldn't be. Yeah. And maybe just, you know, what to you is different about what you just worked on with queer representation in Shakespeare than say homoeroticism in Shakespeare. Yeah, I think well, Homoerotic Space was my first book and uh, came out, it's actually, I think, 20 years ago this year, my God. Oh, cheers um, to that. <laughs> and <clears throat> in that book, I'm very much concerned with relations between characters, uh, a lot of whom are dead. Right? I mean, you have these two friends and one is dead. So that was the case in many of them, but not always. But so that is actually focused on things, you know, behavior that looks to us like homosexuality, mm. although it wasn't called that then. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> and then in Shakespeare and queer representation, I'm really not looking at that at all. And even when I write about the sonnets in Shakespeare and queer representation, I'm not primarily talking about how Shakespeare loves this man. Mm. Well, so thank you. You just solved what I'm going to do to cite you, which is literally. <laughs> what you just said, but it's true because I think what I'm finding is in order to talk about homoeroticism, you just said it, there has to be a kind of coupling or mm -hmm. you're trying to match, <clears throat> especially in these cases, these male bodies together, right? Like there, there has to be a coming together of bodies where in queer representation, it's not defined bodily all the time. No, it's, it's more, it's more question of the language yeah which i think is my my primary interest really hmm, maybe i'll be citing you with my poetic discussion okay <laughs> you okay. just you you just helped me tie my little bow um but okay so now anything else before we head into my little game Stephen? not that i could think of no okay um so i'm gonna call this section Andrew's queer bubble bath corner, just because <laughs> I'm going to get as much as I can out of this <laughs> motif. Um, but, you know, how much are you, and when I say game, these are still questions, but I, they're a little less, uh, you know, formal of a discussion. You know, first, Stephen, you're the one who convinced me to go onto Instagram, which was such a great decision um, that you had me do. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. You see how much I enjoy Instagram. Yeah, yeah, you're um, natural. And I love how much it connects you to networking. Like that's something I, you've taught me a lot. And the whole queer Twitter community and creative, queer creative people, they're on social media connecting to each other. So I'm just curious, when did you really figure out, oh, okay, this is where I need to be to create my queer artist community? Well, I went, I first joined Twitter years ago, over seven years ago now, as a way of keeping in touch with academic friends, because, you know, as a professor, you go to a lot of conferences, you have all these friends, but you see them, you know, once or twice a year, perhaps. Uh, and so I thought, well, Twitter would be a good way of keeping in touch with them. And then it all spiraled out of control. 
And I mean, I, I so at first I followed only people I already knew, and I followed a lot more. And uh, it turns out that there are a lot of, um, which I knew, but there are a lot of queer academics, and a lot of the queer academics are on Twitter. So um, it's been great for that. And uh, you know, one of the great things about social media is it can connect you to people you wouldn't you wouldn't meet in real life because they yeah. work in other departments or, or uh, well graduate students right I don't typically get to know graduate students except some of the ones in my own department so you get to meet people at different stages in your field and of course I follow a lot of people who aren't academics so it's good and it's been especially good during um, the pandemic because it's uh, well it's had to replace actually going out and meeting people yeah yeah and I think too it kind of it's funny when I'm in I don't know if you feel this way but there's almost like this dreamlike state when I'm in off social media, like when I'm actually, you know, going to the gym or like at a cafe because I'm so into social, like this digital sphere that when I'm actually face to face with people, I'm like, huh, this feels kind of like just an alternate reality. It's an, really, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting blurring that's, um, that's in a, a good way though. That's a different kind of representational issue where it's no longer clear, you know, like with the metaphor, it's no longer clear which is the tenor and which is the vehicle. Mm. Oh, I so is social media a sort of version of real life or is real life just a version of social media? Wow. <laughs> now that is definitely a philosophical book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I keep saying to the podcast team, like we're thinking, I'm thinking of doing a social media workshop because I think it's, so helpful for entrepreneurs and people in humanities, artists, creative, anyone like to represent yourself and your work that you go in knowing why you're using each platform. Like Facebook yeah. to me is more my personal. I knew them from growing up in New Jersey. Like I'll sometimes just like connect to people there, but it's more my own personal life, you know, and then Instagram is more of artists and writers and you know pop culture like that's where I connect to all those people and then Twitter I found the academic community but again I think it's you know just knowing why you're accessing each platform can be helpful yeah it's a good thing to know yeah yeah and then um okay so a question I'm really curious about is um when you're reading, are you always, like, how aware are you of finding the queer, any literature? So like, this is outside of your, you know, research studies, just any book you're picking up. Are you always thinking, okay, I'm going to try to find something homoerotic or like, I think there's going to be something queer in this, or is that just? No, not always. Um... I read a lot of Victorian novels, um, I, I, which I love. And you don't typically expect to find queerness in them, although you do. Um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not always looking for it. Yeah, but is there, like, is there a specific um, LGBTQ genre, or like, if I said, okay, you have to, you know, recommend Stephen, like a text that you always remember like your first very openly gay text like do you remember a text you read that just really 
you know, sparked a lot of fireworks inside yourself? Shakespeare's sonnets is kind of like that. It was kind of like that for me. Yeah. Um, and then in high school, I remember discovering the novels of James Purdy, one of the greatest of all American novelists and still shamefully underrated. He died 15 years ago now, maybe. Um, yeah, they were very gay in a very odd way. Very queer, in fact, we would now say that that wasn't the word then. Yeah. Do you remember like reading Dancer from the Dance? I do. That was just after I finished high school, I think. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I have like a special place in my heart for like the vintage 70s gay literature. Yeah, it was good, the 70s. And I always keep saying those novels need to be turned, like none of them have ever been turned into film, which is interesting. That's true. Someone should turn Dancer from the Dance into a series mm. with lots of nudity. <laughs> There you go. I keep saying if I had the funds, I would start a like queer film TV production company and just like you know pitch these books. That would be a great idea. Be a showrunner. <laughs> but yeah, it takes money. That's the, yeah. <laughs> that's what happens in that Hollywood sphere. Um, okay, well, so my last question is just back to this audience question, which is, you know, any reader who encounters this book, right? They might be undergrad students who are assigned it. They might be reading a certain chapter, right? They're being taught Macbeth. So an instructor is going to use your chapter for a queer lens or the sonnets um, or just the general public, right? Who wants to know more about Shakespeare and queerness, which, you know, I definitely know there are a lot of enthusiasts like that. You know, what do you want them to take away from your book? I think that the, 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 to some extent, the queerness of a text is in the hands of its readers. And uh, they can be their own judge over whether they think a text is queer or not. Um, I think that's an important point, the, the sort of the power of the reader in a situation like that. And I think most people, don't have it. They think that there is a reading and someone will tell them and then that will be their understanding of the work. But in fact, they can come up with their own. Yeah, there is no, you know, one secret code to understand mm -hmm. a text. Or that's what I always say to my students. Yeah. Because it gets yeah. drilled into their heads sometimes. And mm -hmm. it's like, gotta, we gotta undo it. Um, <laughs> well, you know, this has been just so wonderful. And I can't end without saying I am wearing my Shakespeare shirt. It says, what would life be without a little Shakespeare? It's, it's good. It's a good sweatshirt. <laughs> Thank you. And, um, you know, if you haven't listened to the Broadway musical soundtrack, but I'm sure you have of Something Rotten. Do you know that musical? I've heard of it. No, I don't know. Oh, okay. You have to listen to the first number called Welcome to the Renaissance. Okay. Because it's very... <laughs> satirical and uh glitzy as anything would be um, on broadway but um thank you so much Stephen. like our time has flown by very quickly mm -hmm, yeah. it's been great it's been great to talk to you and as i say uh, thank you for the invitation yeah of course and um well we're gonna say bye to the audience i'll 
you know, chat with Stephen on just a little after we end this recording. So bye to the listeners. And, you know, again, thank you, Stephen. I hope I'm sure everyone listening, they've learned a lot and are now quickly looking up your book and so many of these texts. They're like, we need these books. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Stephen. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This is Andrew Rimby. I'm the executive director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. And none of this would ever be possible without my amazing team members. So they include Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Jaren Usta, our marketing director, and our two interns, Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. So we do hope that you go find us on our social media. So Instagram, at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are at Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Facebook, and also at Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter. We also have a really exciting Patreon. So patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. You will find unedited audio, unedited videos. You also can get exclusive merchandise of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So just check it out because if you're not getting enough of us and you want to hear more, go on to our Patreon. We hope that you all are staying safe, healthy, peaceful, sending all the good empowering energy. And we really thank you for sharing our podcast, following us. It all really matters. Welcome to the Renaissance. Rebirth.